So on May 27th, 1943, a guy named Louis Zamperini, plane crashed into the Pacific Ocean. Maybe some of you recognize that name. The story was told in the movie Unbroken. First, it was a biography. Fantastic. Uh, you should read it if you haven't already. This plane crashed in the Pacific. He and his crew, they were on a search and rescue mission for another plane that, that had crashed. On day number 47 at sea, he was picked up by the Japanese Navy. and He was taken to a POW camp eventually called the Ofuna camp. Now his 47 days were spent battling dehydration, starvation. Uh, one of his uh, crew members ate all the food on the first day. They battled sharks, but that was nothing compared to what lie ahead for him at this camp. You see, there were problems outside this camp. As the war raged on, World War II raged on, the amount of food that was available was less and less because slowly but surely the war was creeping towards Japan and the guards got greedier and greedier. So the Red Cross would send something like 100 bags of food and rice to, these, to this camp. The guards would take 80 to 90 bags of it for themselves, haul it off to their friends and their family and leave the rest of these POWs with 10 bags of rice. The problems inside the camp were even worse. Mainly one of the prison guards, his name was Watanabe, the, the POWs nicknamed him the bird. This man was literally insane. And unfortunately, the first day he saw Louis Zamperini, he saw how he stood high, how he had some pride. And the bird's goal was to break this man. And he made his life a living hell. Every single day when he'd see him, he would buddy up to him. And then he would beat him up. There was a time one day where he, took, he would take his brass belt buckle, crack him over the head. Louis would fall. He'd go down. He'd say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to. And he'd crack him again. This happened about once a month. It's an extreme story, obviously. We don't face problems like that today, thank the Lord. But we do face problems today. We've got problems outside, and we've got problems inside. Tonight, if, you, if you've heard, we're starting a new series here at Veritas. We're going to walk our way through the New Testament book of Philippians for the rest of of the semester. You see, the Apostle Paul, he was writing to a group of people who were facing problems from the culture outside and also problems within their own community. And we wanted to work our way through this book because, you know, in it we find the secret to surviving, not just surviving, but to thriving when we face these problems. We kind of know what these problems are today, right? A lot of us face pain. We face disappointment. We face anxiety, depression, heartache, loneliness, and more. What's the secret to making it through all of this? Well, we're going to learn what that is in this series and through this book. Now, just to, to kind of introductory matters here, the recipients of Paul's letter, they lived in the Roman city of Philippi. Now, now culturally, Philippi was, was mainly a pagan city. There wasn't a lot of Jewish culture. In other words, the people there didn't know about the sacrificial system. They didn't know about these food laws. And so this explains why the church in Philippi had a pretty small start. You see, when Paul would go to city to city, he would normally look for a Jewish synagogue. He wanted to start there to explain these Old Testament promises and go from there. But Philippi had no synagogues. And so the very first meeting was maybe just a handful of people. This is also a very diverse church. Some of the founding members included an influential, wealthy, working woman. Her name was Lydia. Uh, there was a blue-collar, hardworking guy. He was a Roman jailer. He was just trying to do his job, trying to put food on the table for his family. There was even a slave girl 
She's at the bottom of society, forgotten, seemingly insignificant. She was part of this church. Diversity. I mean, that's something that we kind of see and feel here on campus. Mizzou's pretty, pretty diverse. You got people from all 50 states. You got students from 100 plus countries. There are eight registered ethnicities here on campus, maybe more. And even in this room, even in Veritas, you know, we've got freshmen through seniors. We've got men and women. We've got people who've grown up in the church their entire lives. We've got people who maybe this is your first night at something like this. All sorts of different family backgrounds. All sorts of different socioeconomic statuses. The church in Philippi was, for the most part, a faithful church. Now, they had problems, which we're going to see in a minute. But in all the letters that Paul wrote, we don't have a congregation of people who was affirmed and valued and praised like the Philippians were. And I think, in a similar way, the same is true for people in this room. Now, again, nobody's perfect. Everybody's got their problems. But on the whole, I think a lot of us in this room, a lot of you are fighting to be faithful. Kyle mentioned last week over 200 people in Veritas are serving in some way at the crossing and in other ministries. Even in Veritas alone, we've got a leadership team of about 65 or 70 people. And so if our staff were ever to write you a thank you letter, which maybe we should, uh, I'm confident there'd be lots to be thankful for in this room. But of course, we live in the real world, and the real world isn't perfect, filled with problems. So the main outside threat to this Philippian church, no surprise, was the Roman Empire. You see, this is a very pluralistic society. They had lots of different religions, and Rome was, was fine with that. Look, you want to worship the little God? God bless your heart. You go ahead. But here's the catch. You need to also acknowledge that the emperor is your Lord and your Savior. The Romans believed that the emperor was deified. And so you could practice whatever religion you want in the Roman Empire as long as you also acknowledged that the Caesar, the emperor, was Lord and Savior. And so this sense of loyalty and patriotism to Rome and the emperor, it was heightened in Philippi. Because what happened was when Philippi was established, it became kind of the retirement community for ex-Roman soldiers. After your tour of duty, when you're done, where are you going? I'm going to Philippi. And so it makes sense. This is the hub of patriotism, one of the main hubs of patriotism in the Roman Empire. Similar in Washington, D.C. It's a pretty big hub of American patriotism. Kind of has that feel a little bit. And so if you're a Christian, Living in Philippi, the dilemma is obvious. The dilemma is obvious because you can't, you can't declare that the emperor is also Lord and Savior. That title is reserved for someone else. It's reserved for Jesus. You see, these Christians here, they were not willing to comply, and they paid the price for it. They were passed over for a promotion in their job. They were excluded socially and intellectually. They weren't taken seriously. They were even physically harassed and persecuted. And unfortunately, I think the same is true for a lot of us today. We live in a very pluralistic society. Everybody's entitled to their own beliefs, religious or otherwise. And if you acknowledge that, as long as you say, look, yeah, you can believe that. That's great. All right, cool. Fine. Nothing wrong with that. I'm going to go ahead and believe my thing. We're going to be okay. But again, I think you feel the tension, right? Of course, we want to be thankful for this freedom. We love the freedom of expression. We need to be thankful for it. And yet, we see the dilemma. We can't say that all the religions are essentially the same. We can't say, yeah, you go ahead and do your thing. I'm going to go ahead and do my thing. We can't say that because Jesus did that. Jesus said that he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And so believing these things today is going to mean that we might have to pay the price. We too might be discriminated against. 
in our classes. We might be on the fringe social. We might be passed over and disrespected by the people who matter most. Problems outside, but there's also problems inside. These were the most dangerous ones, the ones that Paul is most concerned about, specifically in this church, the threat of disunity. You see, there's some simmering pride among the members of this church here in Philippi. And so Paul is writing to try and turn the heat down, trying to make sure that everybody, kind of the band, stays together. We don't want the band to break up. You see, this is a huge problem in the first century because if you think about it, if you don't like the music style, if you don't like the preaching style, if you don't like the coffee or the donuts before the meeting, you can't go anywhere else. You got three options. You could leave and stop going to church, which is not a good idea. You could tear the church apart, or you could really fight to remain unified. So it makes sense why Paul is so concerned for this church to be united, because it's probably the only church in this super influential city of Philippi. But as I mentioned earlier, thankfully, they're doing a pretty good job. And so here's how Paul kicks off the letter. He starts with a lot of thanks. Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. If you got your Bible, you can open there. If you want, or up on the screen, it says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Notice that phrase. They are partnering with Paul in the gospel, and he is so thankful for that. He goes on even just a few verses later to write about the hope he has for this church in the coming years. This is kind of the the 5, 10, 20, 100-year plan. This is what he wants in verse 9. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of what he hopes happens. It's also a pretty tall order. He's setting the bar pretty high. As as I was reading this and studying this, just the first question right around that came through my head is, how the heck are they going to do that? knowing the problems that they face from outside themselves, knowing the threats that they face on the inside in their community and in their own hearts. How the heck is he going to do that? How can he be so confident that this is going to happen? We get the answer in Philippians 1, verse 6, which is where we're going to camp out for the rest of the night. He says this, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is how the church is going to continue to remain united. This is how they can be a people who can be a blessing and impact in ways that make people's lives better and in ways that God wants the city that's around them, despite the hardships that they're facing. Philippians' call is no different than our call today. We have been called to the same mission that they have. And so for the rest of the time, here's how we'll do this. We're going to do three truths and three takeaways from this verse that's going to help us today, 2017, at Mizzou, Stevens College, Columbia College, Moberly, wherever we are in Columbia, this is how we're going to be faithful in the face of outside and inside problems. So here's the first truth. Our successes are not our own. First part of Philippians 1.6 says, For I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you. He who began a good work. So at the most foundational level, What it means to be a Christian, what it means to be part of God's people is that we have been brought into God's family by the actions of another. You didn't convict you of sin, and you don't convict you of sin. You didn't bring you 
to God, you and I were dead. To believe in Jesus is to acknowledge that we played no role in initiating the process. The only thing we did was we responded. Paul says this in Ephesians 2.8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Why say this? Well, here's why. Paul knew something about the human heart. He knew something about his own heart. He knew something about my heart and all of our hearts. He knew that we have a tendency to want to take credit for ourselves. He knew our tendency to brag. He said in the very next verse in Ephesians, it says this, This salvation is the gift of God. Why? So that no one may boast. You could also say so that no one may brag. If you didn't know, I am currently the proud owner of a 2007 black Cadillac DTS. You can laugh. It's okay. It's a funny car. Now, I want to make it clear. This is not the car I would have chosen for myself. I am 32, not 72. If any of you have a Cadillac, we can talk later. It's fine. Uh, But here's the reason why I have this car. Last Christmas, my father-in-law approached Polly and I said, hey, do you want my old Cadillac? My first thought was no. But then after thinking about it for a little bit, I realized we, my wife and I, we had a, a, a pretty good car. We could sell, get some money. We were not in a position to say no to money. So I swallowed my pride, and I said, okay, I'll take the Cadillac. Thank you. Now, could you imagine what would happen if I started walking around and bragging that I myself bought this Caddy? I secured this Caddy. I mean, look at the great features. It's such a smooth ride. Let me tell you how much money I spent on it. Okay, apart from looking like an idiot, which I for sure would be, I am doing a disservice to my father-in-law because he's the one who gave me the car. We do this all the time. We take credit when we don't deserve to take the credit. We brag about things we have no business bragging over. We brag about our intellectual abilities. We brag about our clothes, our bodies, our personalities. We brag about who we're dating and where we're going on those dates and what we're doing on those dates and with other friends. We brag about what we're learning. We brag about how we're growing spiritually. We brag about how much of an impact we are having in our small group or in our friend now, all these things, they're actually, they're good. Let me say that up front. They're really good. But here's when it becomes a problem. When we start using those good things to feel better about ourselves. When we start using those things to put other people down. We start using those things to find our sense of self-worth. This brings us to our first takeaway. Because our successes are not our own, we need to give credit where credit's due. Give credit where credit is due. James 1 Verse 17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. See, when we brag, we're taking credit for things that we have no business taking credit for because they were given to us. They were given to us. God has given you that intellectual ability. God has given you the ability and the means to buy certain clothes. God has given you a body that's in shape. He's given you that certain personality type. He's brought that certain person into your life. He's given you that job opportunity, that internship opportunity. He's the one who's going to give you a paycheck. He's the one who's responsible for your growth. He's responsible for the other people in your small group's growth. He's using you. All the credit goes to him. Let's take it even a step further. I for sure need to, need to take this a step further. Think about somebody that you wish you were like. Who's that person? Who's that girl? Who's smarter than you? Who's a better host than you? Who's prettier than you? Who's a better communicator than you? Who's making more money than you? Who's more respected than you? Who's more of a leader than you? Who's growing more quickly? Who seems to get it more than you? 
Here's the truth. God is blessing that person and those people. He is giving them his good gifts. He's begun a good work in their life. And if and when you and I become bitter at their success and hope that they fail, we're failing to give credit where credit is due. You see, each and every person, yourself included, has been given gifts and talents by God. He's begun the good work in our lives, and therefore we should rejoice at that prospect. We need to give God credit. Here's a second truth. Yesterday's faith won't get us through tomorrow. Yesterday's faith won't get us through tomorrow. Let's keep going in Philippians 1.6. I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on. This verse is reminding us that not only is God the one who begins the work, he actually carries it on every single day of our lives. He's the one making sure that it's going to keep happening. I think Paul says this because our tendency, my tendency for sure, is to believe the exact opposite. I believe that my experiences yesterday, my faith yesterday, is for sure going to get me through tomorrow. How could it not? You know, when I was in high school, I grew up in a church, and we went on uh, mission trips every year. And I went to three when I was in high school. went to Ohio, went to Oklahoma, and I went to South Dakota. And by and large, those were great. We helped a lot of people. I really connected well with the people on the trip, the leaders on the trip. We, we had great Bible studies at the end of the day. We sang really impactful songs around campfire and under the stars. And it was awesome. I felt so close to God. You know what happened when I got back? Nothing. Nothing changed. My life was exactly the same. It went back to normal. I settled back into the same old habits. I hung out with the same old friends. I lived the exact same self-sustaining, self-sufficient life that I had before. And so when I got to college and I wanted to explore the freedom that I so wanted that I knew that I couldn't get because I'd make my parents mad or I'd make whoever else mad, when I came to college, I would always go back to those experiences to make myself feel a little bit better. So my freshman year, I went to a campus ministry a couple weeks, wasn't for me. I made myself feel better because I told myself, look, I went, I went on all those mission trips. I knew God back then. It's fine. I know him now. When I stopped reading my Bible regularly, I told myself, look, I learned a lot of great stuff back then. The Bible's not changing. God doesn't change. What's true back then is true today. I know it. When I started making some questionable social decisions, decisions that I don't think I would have made a couple years ago, I looked back at the people on those trips. They were doing the same things that I wanted to do. We connected with God on those trips. What's wrong? Why can't I do that? I use that as a means to justify my behavior to make myself feel good. Have you ever done that? You ever believe that yesterday's faith will for sure get you through tomorrow? What's that yesterday's faith for you? you know, maybe you went on a mission trip last year, and it was great. And you're thinking that those experiences are going to get you through the semester. Maybe you were a camp counselor last summer, and you led in a way that you never did, and you're pumped up, and you think that those experiences are going to be enough to help you lead this semester. Maybe you were in a high, high school small group for four years. It was the best thing you ever had can't get any better than that, and you're hoping that's going to get you through the year of college. You know, if and when we do this, we're treating our relationship with God like a game of poker. If you, if you played poker, if you want a hand in poker, you know that when you, when you win, you get all those chips. You stack those chips. You've got a nice little stack of money. You've got the whites and the reds and the blues and the greens. It's nice. And what do you do? You know what happens? You, your confidence goes up, and your desperation goes down. Your confidence goes up, and your desperation goes down, you're not worried about running out of money because you just got a ton. 
Now, you're not dumb enough to believe that you're always going to have money. Of course not. That's stupid. You just know it's not going to run out anytime soon. And it's at this moment when we are in the greatest danger. This moment we're in the greatest danger because we begin to believe that we can carry on ourselves. We begin to believe that we can maintain our relationship with God, grow our relationship with God on our own. Paul's letter to the Galatians is a, is a reminder and a warning to us. In Galatians 3, 3, it says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The Christians in this church, they had an amazing experience with God. He started a good work in their lives, just like he did with those people in Philippi, just like he does in your life, hopefully. But then they started to believe they could make it to tomorrow on their own. It's like, hey, thanks, God, for getting us started. We got it from here. Thank you. No, we don't need your help. We're good. Fine. We're often no different. We know that yesterday's faith is not going to last forever. Nobody's that dumb. But surely it's not going to run out tomorrow, right? Well, wrong. You see, instead of relying on yesterday's faith to get us through tomorrow, here's what we need to do. Second takeaway, we need to trust in Jesus today. We need to trust in Jesus today. Imagine you went to your favorite restaurant, right, and you had one of the best meals, top ten meals, top three meals of your life. It was so good. You wake up the next morning, you go downstairs, your roommates are cooking breakfast. They say, hey, you want something? You go, no, I'm good. I just had the best meal of my life. I'm going to be good for about three, four, five days. Right. Not going to go well. This makes total sense in the realm of food because our bodies are extremely needy and desperate. We have to have multiple portions of food and drink multiple times a day. Duh. Our relationship with God is no different than our relationship with food. Our relationship with God is no different than our relationship with food. It's not a poker game where we stack chips every once in a while. It's a meal. It's taking in nourishment multiple times a day. And so when we rely on yesterday's faith to get us through tomorrow, we're depriving ourselves of what we need most. Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verse 3, a little context here. Moses is giving kind of his final speech to the people of Israel. And he is recounting the mistakes that they made in the past explaining the lesson, an important lesson that God is trying to teach them before they go into the promised land. Here's what he says. God humbled you, let you hunger in the wilderness, fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Is your relationship with God a poker game or a meal? Right now, do you think you've got a lot of chips stacked up with God? You're going to be good for a while? Or do you feel like you're going to starve without him? When God says he's going to carry us on to completion, he's trying to help us see that yesterday's faith won't get us to tomorrow, and so we need to trust Jesus today. And this can mean a lot of different things. You know, instead of listening to an article or music on a bus ride to campus, maybe you turn everything off and you just pray. You just think about your day. When you think through the day, maybe you say a phrase. I've done this before. It really helps. Jesus, I need you today. If you don't go with me to this class, to this meeting, to this whatever, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be able to do what you want of me. Will you please help me? You know, maybe you just look for a couple Bible verses like Deuteronomy 8, and you just, you just think about it. You memorize it. You find things that help remind us that our relationship with God's a meal and not a poker game. 
I know that, that God has begun a work in most, if not all of us in this room. And, and seriously, I don't mean to make you question these genuine experiences of God. They're, they're, I have no doubt that a lot of them are real. But the response to that, the response to those is not to become more independent from God, but it's to become more desperate for God. That's what he's wanting to do. I got myself, uh, <clears throat> got myself in trouble a couple months ago with, with my wife. It's never happened before. Uh, here's what I, I literally said this to my wife, okay? I don't know what we were talking about, how it came up, but it came up. And, and I said, you know, Polly, if, if, if I would have found out what my life looked like 10 years ago and what I'd been through in the last 10 years, I would have said I wanted out. Why would my wife get mad at that? Of course, she has every right to be. She, the next thing she said, she was silent, and I kind of went, Oh, no, what did I say? She, she goes, well, Austin, you have, I think, a pretty decent marriage and a good family and kids. You're right. Yes, I'm sorry. I didn't think about that. You're right. So I apologize profusely, which is what I needed to do. But here's what I was thinking about when I said that. In the past 10 years, if I would have seen what I would have gone through, I was thinking about how hard my first year of work in the real world was. I was thinking about how difficult it was to commute to and from seminary, from Columbia to St. Louis, with first one kid, then two kids. I was thinking about how difficult life was when I totally tore up my ankle two days before my second son was born. I was thinking about how difficult it was to wake up at 5.30 in the morning for two years straight on average. I was thinking about how difficult it was to tear my ACL with three kids and the year-long recovery. I was thinking about how difficult my own sin made on my family and on my kids and in my own personal life. If I knew all that was in store for me 10 years ago when I saw it, I would have said I wanted out. Ten years ago, I wasn't able to handle all that God had for me. And my guess is that I'm not alone. My guess is I'm not alone. If five years ago you found out what your story had in store for you, you probably would have said you wanted out too. It's because our stories, they include twists and turns that we can't see, that we wouldn't want for ourselves. You know, that, that person wasn't supposed to cheat on you. You weren't supposed to get turned down for the job. Your family life wasn't supposed to look like this. Living in a fraternity and sorority was not what I thought it was going to be. You weren't supposed to struggle with that sin. You weren't supposed to be anxious, depressed, lonely. Why is this happening to me? None of us, none of us can see the road ahead. And in this very moment, you and I, we're not equipped to handle what's going to happen to us this semester, this next year, these next five years. And so if we can't see that if we're not equipped to handle that how the heck are we going to make it to the end so that leads to our last truth truth number three we can make it to the end because god finishes what he starts god finishes what he starts last part of philippians 1 6 i am confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of christ jesus the day of christ jesus that's a reference to the very end of the story, the complete restoration of all things. Again, if you know the story, God created a good world and filled it. He called Adam and Eve, his first human creatures made in his image, to be fruitful and to multiply and be stewards of that creation. But they rebelled. They were tempted by Satan. They wanted to do life their own way. And when they did that, that's when sin came into the world and broke everything, infected everything. But immediately after, God promised that an offspring, someone would come to make it right, to redeem and restore and make things right. That promised Messiah was Jesus. And his death and resurrection guaranteed the death of 
death. It was the down payment, the promise that one day things are going to be the way that they should be. A completely renewed earth, cleansed of sin. Completely new physical bodies. Living with God the way we were meant to. No more anxiety. No more depression. No more guilt. No more shame. shame. A life where every day gets better than the next. Can you imagine what that would be like? The next day is better, and then the next day is better than that, and the next day is better than that. It's because we'll be with Jesus in a completely restored earth. Can you imagine? I, I can, but then again, I can't. I can't because this, this promise, it seems too good to be true. It does not fit with my everyday experience. I think it's a little bit like this uh, picture. <clears throat> Gosh, I hope the picture's there. Uh, it's this beautiful picture of a mountain. And there it is, yes. <clears throat> you know, we see the mountaintop, right? We know that's the end, maybe the day of completion. That's where we're going. But from our perspective, where we're at in the picture, we're on the field. We don't know the exact route we're going to take to get there. Of course, we know we need to go through the trees and up the mountain, duh. But we don't know the specifics. We don't know what's in those trees. Are there any creatures there? What ter- twists and turns are going to lie ahead? But here's the deal. God finishes what he starts. He's going to make sure that we get there. And this leads to our third and final takeaway. Because God finishes what he starts, we can have hope for the future. We can have hope for the future. <clears throat> First Peter 1, verse 4, says, Your inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God's telling us that we believe in him. That belief is the means by which God is guarding us. He is protecting his people. See, God had this story in motion long before you and I were born. He has no intention of giving up now. He has no intention of giving up now. As the worship team comes up, I want to do something together. First, ask yourself this question. What worries you about tomorrow? you go to bed, what are you going to be thinking about that, that brings you a lot of worry tomorrow? What keeps you up at night? What are those problems outside that you're facing? What are those inside problems that you have? Think about it for a second. <clears throat> now I want you to put down your pens, put down your journals, put down your phone. And I want you to look at your hands. It's kind of weird. Just trust me. Just go with it. Look at your hands. And I want you to find the smallest speck possible. Find the smallest speck possible. Maybe a little blister, one of your pores, a little scuff, something. Now, I want you to imagine that that little speck is earth. Now, I want you to try and find Waters Auditorium in Columbia, Missouri, on that little speck. It's even smaller. Now, I want you to imagine that you are God. I don't say that very often. Imagine that you are God looking down at that speck taking just how big you are compared to that speck. Now imagine you just heard about that problem you told yourself. In all your power, in all your might, in all your bigness and your grandeur and your glory, is that problem too? Are you able to help you? Is God able to help you? When we look at it from this perspective, of course, of course, This is how God sees you and he sees me every single day of our lives. He knows the problems we're facing. They're not too big for him. They're too big for us. 
They're not too big for him. He knows what lies ahead of us. Remember, this is the God who began a good work in you, began a good work in me. Wouldn't it make sense to give him the credit? This is the God who carries us along every single day. Is this a God who you want to have an experience with every now and then? Or is this the God you want in your life every single day? This is the God who finishes what he starts, and this is why we can have hope in the future. Let's believe that. Let's remember that. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we, when we stop, if we're thinking about things rightly, we admit that, of course, you are able to handle our problems. They're too big for us, but they're not too big for you. God, I, I confess the ways, and we confess the ways in which we take credit for things that we have no business taking credit for. Thank you, you began the good work in us, and we acknowledge that to you. God, please save us from believing that yesterday's faith will get us through tomorrow. Move us to trust in you today. And lastly, God, give us hope. Give us hope for the future, whatever it may be. Help us to remember who you are in Jesus. In his name we